Last time we were in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah, the last part of chapter 3 of the book of Isaiah. And there we saw Isaiah's intense prayer for a revival. This is perhaps the, the most impassioned prayer in the entire book of Isaiah. Isaiah is just laying it all out before the Lord. And he's praying that the Lord would bring a, a revival to Israel. He asked that the Lord look down from heaven, as we saw in our passage last time, that the Lord look down from heaven to display His zeal and His mighty deeds on behalf of Israel for His people. And today, Isaiah the prophet is going to continue his petition before the Lord. Let me read our passage today, which is verses 1 through 7 of chapter 64. It reads like this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For the days of old, for from the days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Here, the prophet is continuing his impassioned petition before the Lord. He cries out to the Lord, asking the Lord to act. He's asking the Lord to do the spectacular, to do the unexpected, as only God can do. He's making this petition for an Israel that he knows is rebellious. He's making the petition for an Israel that he knows is utterly undeserving of the things that he is asking of God. So let's look at this petition in a little more detail, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. The presence of God is always, always overwhelming and utterly terrifying. This is what Isaiah is describing here. Isaiah has personal knowledge of this. Because you remember in the call of Isaiah in chapter 6, when Isaiah is taken up into a vision into the third heaven, and he sees Yahweh on his throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. You hear me refer to Isaiah 6 often, because it is so important to get your mind right. The reason the prophet Isaiah is so impressive among the prophets is because his mind is right. And his mind was made right when he sees the Lord lofty and exalted in the third heaven with the train of his robe filling the temple. Because in heaven, the throne room and the temple are united. 
All authority, religious authority, political authority, all authority is united and ultimately emanates, emanates from the God who is. But Isaiah's response is what I want you to remember. Remember when he is standing before the Lord and he sees the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, his response is, oh, it's all good. We're chilling here. It's all good. You're my buddy. You're my pal. That's not his response. His response is, oi! That's the Hebrew word. It's not a word that is good. It's, whoa. It's the word you, you utter when Bernie Madoff steals all your money. Oi! That was Isaiah's response there in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, Oi, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the armies. He knows that the presence of God is always overwhelming and utterly terrifying. Isaiah has personal knowledge of this and he asked God to come and appear again, his presence. He asks him to rend the heavens. Rend is an old English word for tear. To rip apart the sky and display his presence. Because what Isaiah wants God to do, as he has done in the past, is to intervene in human affairs in a spectacular way. God will grant Isaiah's prayer. He will. But you don't find the grant of the prayer until the end of the book. And I don't mean the end of the book of Isaiah. I mean the end of the book. Because in Revelation chapter 6, 14, we read this. This is the terrifying scene of the sixth seal judgment. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves. That's everybody. That's everybody. That's the potentates and the impoverished. That's the presidents and the paupers. That's everybody. At least everybody who's an unbeliever. And every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. There's the word from the presence. That's the word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 64. This is the word that the rebels will use in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The question demands a negative answer. No one. No one is able to stand in the presence of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne, a reference to the Father, and of the wrath of the Lamb, a reference to Messiah. Make no mistake, the King is coming. The King is coming, and He will do the supernatural that our culture finds such finds in a way that, that is mocking. The way our culture mocks the supernatural, that is the way God will display himself as he rips apart the sky when he returns to display the supernatural so that the skeptics are no longer skeptics. What Isaiah is doing in chapter 64, verse 1, 
is he is calling on God to do that which he has done in the past, to come down from his heavenly abode and to display his splendor and his majesty. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 2, we read this phrase, so that the nations will tremble at your presence. It's a reference to the nations. That's the Hebrew word goyim, which means the Gentiles. Isaiah wants God to appear, to, to rip open the sky, to tear it apart, and to display his presence so that the Gentiles, so that the nations will tremble at his presence. Why is Isaiah concerned about the, the, the nations when he's making a prayer for revival in Israel? Because he knows that Israel, when they see God in his splendor and in his majesty, He understands that it will make Israel's mind right when they see what God displays to the Gentiles. When God comes down from His heavenly abode to display His splendor and His majesty in His might, the Gentiles will tremble. This is what will happen in the Great Tribulation when Christ returns. Because that's what's happening as the the sealed judgments unfold, as the bold judgments unfold in Revelation. Remember, the church is last mentioned in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 3. The church is mentioned in Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and then it is conspicuously missing from Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. You don't see the church again until Revelation 19. Because in that period, from Revelation 4 through Revelation 18, and even into the beginning of Revelation 19, are the judgments. It's the judgments, the sealed judgments, the bold judgments, on an earth that is rebellious, on the Gentiles, and on a rebellious Israel. But it is after Israel sees God rip open the sky, literally, and display His judgments against a world that is rebellious. It is after that that Israel in Revelation 19 submits to her Messiah. And Jesus in Revelation 19 protects her from the Gentiles and slaughters the armies that are gathered against Jerusalem at Armageddon. This is what Isaiah is calling for. He doesn't know all those details. Those details haven't been revealed yet. He is simply calling for God to display His power and His majesty and His splendor to the Gentiles that they may tremble so that it will change Israel's mind. So that they will, to use the warden's phrase in Kuhan Luke, so that they will get their minds right. That's what Isaiah is calling God to do when he says, to display His presence to the Gentiles that they may tremble. Isaiah refers in verses 1 and 2 to earthquakes and fire because these things often accompany the presence of God. We'll see that in a few moments. Then in verse 3, Isaiah recalls the time when God visited His people at Mount Sinai. Look at verse 3. It reads like this. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down... The mountains quaked at your presence. Awesome things is the nifal participle of the Hebrew verb yara. Yara means to fear. And so when you put it in the nifal stem, 
They're different stems in Hebrew words. When you put it in the nifal stem and you put it not as a traditional verb, but you put it as a participle, which means you have an actor who's doing the verb, the one who is feared is the way you translate it. The one who is dreaded. The one who does the things that are fearful. The one who is terrifying because of what he does. This is all packed into this phrase that we use so casually today. Awesome! Sweet! Awesome! That's not actually the proper way to use the word. I'm guilty of it too. That's not the proper way to use the word. Because the, the, the use of the Hebrew word yara here is a word that invokes terror, that invokes fear, that is translated here awesome, the awesome things of God. You see, the one who approaches God casually, there's really no other way to use it. He's a fool. She's a fool. And we will see that as, this, as our study unfolds this morning. The awesome things of God that we did not expect, is what Isaiah says here. It's a reference to when God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai and gave them the law. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, where the Lord displays himself to the Israelites. He comes from heaven to display his majesty to display his splendor to the Israelites. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, reads like this. The Lord also said to Moses, that Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Where is he coming down from? He's coming down from heaven. He's coming down from his heavenly abode, from the third heaven. Verse 12, you shall set, this is Yahweh still speaking to Moses, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him. The guy who touches the mountain, you don't lay a hand on him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. If the goat wanders up up to touch the mountain, kill the goat. If the Israelite touches the mountain, kill the Israelite. But don't touch them because they're, they're unclean. Don't touch them. Run them through with an arrow or stone them to death. God's holiness, His awesomeness demands that we approach Him on His terms. Don't come to God on your terms. He is utterly disinterested and disgusted by my terms and your terms. We must approach him according to his terms. Look at verse 16. Jump down to verse 16. So it came about on the third day. Remember, day one and day two are days of preparation. But then you're on the third day when Yahweh would appear. It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Do you tremble at the name of God? I hope you do. Keep reading, verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. I say again that the presence of God is always overwhelming and utterly terrifying. This is what Isaiah wants God to remind the people of. The one who takes lightly, the God who is, is a fool. There's no other word to use. He's a fool. The one who disrespects God is a fool. Isaiah wants God to do another Mount Sinai type appearance because he wants the people to be mindful of the awesomeness, mindful of the majesty of God. When we forget who God is, we drift. We drift into neutrality. You know, I'm not against you, God. I just, I'm, just, I'm just not that into you right now. We think that neutrality is actual neutrality. But with God, there is no neutrality. You're either submitting to Him or you're opposed to Him. That's it. There's no Switzerland with God. When we fail to remember the awesomeness, the terror, the wonder of God, then we drift. We drift into what we think is neutrality and ultimately we drift into unrighteousness. It happened to the Israelites. And it happens to us. It happens to church-age believers. The words of A.W. Tozer from more than 60 years ago in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I think are appropriate. He says, There is a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. This is more than 60 years ago when he wrote this. He would have fallen out of his chair and vomited if he, if he saw the state of Christianity today. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20, 20th century. The principle that we must not forget is that our thoughts, our behaviors, and our priorities are a product of our view of God. If we fail to fear God, a phrase that is almost meaningless among Christians today. Remember, he's a God-fearing man. She's a God-fearing woman. That used to mean something. But we don't even know what that phrase means anymore. If we fail to fear God, to approach him like the young calf approaches the new gate. And we don't care if people think that we're dummies. If we fail to approach God in wonder and awe, it will impact our priorities. It will impact our thoughts and our behavior. The reason that we don't approach God in fear is because we think we're on the same level as Him. 
We think that we're on the same par as Him. And why do I need to worship and submit to someone who's like me? We don't understand, we don't appreciate the otherness of God. That's what holiness means. Kadosh. The other word that, the, that Isaiah hears when he's in Isaiah 6, and the seraphs are flying, hovering over the throne above Yahweh, declaring kadosh, holy. It means otherness. It also means moral purity. But the focus here is his complete separation from his creation, his complete otherness, yet he's also transcendent and engages in his creation. Isaiah wants God to again display his presence so that Israel will fear him as they have in the past. And once they fear God, they will seek to please him and they will seek what God values, righteousness. Remember the proverb, Proverbs 19, excuse me, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We ignore that proverb at our great peril. Please turn back to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, reads like this. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. No eye has seen a God besides you. This is a way of describing the exclusivity of God. We studied the this, this past Wednesday night in the book of 1 Samuel. God is exclusive, exclusivistic, which is to say he de- delegitimizes all other gods. He delegitimizes the gods that we create in our own lives, the gods of the culture, the idols of the culture. We studied them this past, or a number of them this past Wednesday night. What the prophet is really driving at in verse 4 is how God always, always exceeds expectations. God is full of surprises. It's not that life is full of surprises. It's that God is full of surprises. And that's what the prophet is driving at here in verse 4. If you will just open your eyes, you will see the many surprises that God has for you. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul cites this very passage and he says this in 1 Corinthians 2.9, things, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Very important phrase at the end. For those who love him. Our finite minds cannot even anticipate. It doesn't even come into your thinking the incredible blessings the extraordinary things that God has in store for us. But notice the phrase in verse 4, very, very important phrase. In order to receive the blessings, we must wait on Him. Look what Isaiah says. God acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. You don't wait, you don't get the blessings. That's simple. The verb to wait in the Hebrew is the verb ha-ha. Is that not ironic? Ha-ha. That's what we say to the world. Ha-ha. Wait. Because the world mocks you for waiting. They mock you for waiting. For waiting on the Lord. The Lord says, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, do this and do this and do this. But the world says, no, 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 no. 
Don't do those things and do those things. And your proper response should be, I'm ha-haim. I'm waiting on the Lord. Waiting. And the ha-ha here, the wait, is in the PL stem of the verb, which means it's intensive action. How do you wait intensively? There's only one way to do that, and it's to trust. It's to trust. Because when you trust in the Lord, then the Lord delivers blessing. The way you wait intensively is by actively, actively trusting in the person that you're waiting on. But this makes no sense. It makes no sense to trust in God if you don't respect Him. If you don't fear Him. Fear means reverential awe, like the calf staring at the gate. If you don't view God that way, then you're not going to wait for Him which is to say you're not going to trust him because he's not worthy of your trust, at least in your false perception of him. And so the only way to wait on him is to fear him. That's why Isaiah talks about the awesome things, describes his presence as involving earthquakes and fire because Isaiah is trying to bring us, he's trying to bring the people, but to the Israel, but us by extension, to the place of ha-ha, to the place of trust, to the place of waiting. And in order to wait, you must trust. And in order to trust, you must fear Him. You must respect Him. This is what Isaiah is pushing us to here. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, the prophet talked about the rewards that come from waiting on the Lord, from trusting in the Lord. You know the verse. You've heard it before. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Wait. Wait on the Lord, which is to say trust Him. Then we read in verse 5 of chapter 64, You meet Him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry for we sinned, We continued in them a long time. Notice the elements here of fellowship, of fellowship with God. It says you meet with Him. God meets with the believer. This is the description of fellowship, of active fellowship. You see that the the elements that are required for fellowship for the believer. You see confession of sin here, don't you? Isaiah says, for we sinned. You have to confess your sin for fellowship. And you see the other other element too. Obedience. Confession of sin and obedience. Look at the phrase, who remembers God's ways. Who rejoices in righteousness. That's obedience. So Isaiah says, we sinned. That's confession. And then he says, the one who rejoices in righteousness, the one who remembers God's ways... That's obedience. Now the righteousness there is God's absolute righteousness, not our relative righteousness, which I'll talk about in a moment. This is intimate, continued fellowship, which requires confession and repentance. Now it's true that 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is true that that promise gives us immediate restoration of fellowship. 
But we're not called to be the paddleball believers. Remember paddleball? It's this paddle. It's got a string. It's got like a rubber string. It's got a ball in the end. And you go, and the ball comes, and you're kind of banging that ball. That's not how we're called to be. We're not called to be believers. We're called to, at some point, obey. I'm not saying we're going to be sinless, but we should sin less. And so we need to not only confess our sin, but we need to repent. Another way of saying obedience. We need to turn from it. Now, when we return, like the pig, to the mud, we need to confess the sin, but we need to run from it and ask the Lord to help you repent. Both things are needed for continued fellowship. Confession and repentance. But the Israelites didn't desire fellowship. They didn't desire continued fellowship. They sinned willfully and consistently. Look at the phrase that he uses, we continued in them, in our sins, a long time. So much so that it invoked the fury of God. It says God was angry. That's the Hebrew word katsaf, which means to be furious or angry. And so Isaiah wonders how severe God's discipline will be. That's why he says, and shall we be saved? Sometimes God in his mercy doesn't take out the belt and whip us for every sin that we commit. Right? Sometimes we commit a sin and God doesn't discipline us for us. And we should respond to that, God, you are gracious. But sadly, sometimes we respond to, sweet. There were no consequences for that sin that I did. And it emboldens us to keep doing it in our sinfulness. You see, our broken sin nature takes God's mercy and transforms it into something that is sinful in our own minds. Sometimes God, in His graciousness, does not take out the belt for every sin that we do. I shouldn't say it. Sometimes. He doesn't take the belt out and discipline us for every sin that we do. But this is willful, continued, prolonged sin. And that's why Isaiah wonders, God's going to discipline us. He wonders about the severity of the sin for the people because of their rebellion that has enraged God. You see it with this description that God is angry. Then the prophet describes the pervasiveness of Israel's sin in verse 6. Look at that. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This verse is describing the life of the believer, which is dominated by sin, what it looks like. And the prophet uses three graphic images. The first image that he uses is a leper. Is a leper who has to scream out, unclean, unclean. Because Isaiah says here, we've all become like one who is unclean. That's a, that, that really takes us back to Leviticus 13, verse 45. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Right? When the leper comes up, he's to cover his face and scream, unclean, unclean. This is the way Isaiah describes this generation who have come 
to sin against God willfully and consistently without repentance, without confession of sin. The second image that he uses to describe a life that is dominated by sin is a filthy garment because he says Israel's righteousnesses are like a filthy garment. The Hebrew here is veged idim, which literally means a menstruation garment. This is relative righteousness versus absolute righteousness, right? Relative righteousness is we find people and we say, man, you are so messed up. She is so messed up. And we feel good about that. We prop ourselves up. by We never look for someone who is more righteous than us. We always find someone who's less righteous, at least we think less righteous than us. Do you know about Susie? You know, as we kind of gossip. She's doing that, and, and it makes us feel good. Number one, it makes us feel empowered. But number two, it makes us feel righteous because we're not doing what Susie or what Johnny's doing. That's what's called relative righteousness. We compare our righteousness with someone else who we've identified as not doing what we do. And that's relative righteousness. And God describes that as a menstruation garment. That God describes our righteousness as something that is disgusting before Him. This is what Isaiah is describing as relative righteousness versus the absolute righteousness because when we consider God's absolute righteousness or we could say God's holiness... Because holiness also includes the concept not just of otherness, but of absolute moral purity. Then we recognize that Susie is unrighteous and Johnny is unrighteous, but so is Alex in comparison to the perfect, absolute holiness of God. This is what Isaiah is contrasting here in this verse. Warren Worsby makes a very valid point here. He says... If our righteousnesses are disgusting before God, what must our sins look like before God? In His sight. The third image that the prophet uses to describe a life that is dominated by sin, it's not only like a leper, it's not only like a filthy garment, but it's also like dead leaves. He uses this phrase, wither like a leaf taken away by the wind. The people's sin is so pervasive that they were like leaves withering on the vine, waiting for the wind to blow them here or there. Just like the old song by Kansas, right? Dust in the wind. Blown here, blown there. Purposeless, meaningless. That's what a life characterized by sin is, by unchecked sin. And look at verse 7. The first half of the verse reads like this. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of of you. Here the prophet continues his explanation of what a life unchecked by sin, dominated by sin, looks like. You don't call on God's name. Prayer is boring to you. Prayer is just not that interesting to you, Isaiah says. You don't call on God's name because other things are more interesting because you don't fear God, because you don't respect God. You don't approach Him with fear and awe. You don't view Him as other, as holy. A prayerless life 
is the life of a believer who is dominated by other things that are more interesting than God. God is boring to that believer because that believer doesn't fear him. Look at the phrase in the beginning of verse 7 that says, not arousing oneself to take hold of God. This means spending your life in a stupor, just wandering around like you're sleepwalking through life. You see, in order to be freed from the dominion of sin, we must take hold of God, take hold of God's promises. You remember Jacob? Jacob, which the name means trickster. He tricked his father. He tricked his brother. He just, he tricks everybody. And after he'd been punished by God, then God appears to him in a vision as a wrestler. And Jacob holds on to God like he's wrestling with God. He hold, I'm not going to let you go. And God in this dream says, let me go. I'm not going to let you go. Jacob, because he finally realizes that you must Lay hold of God and you hang on. You hang on to God's promises. This is what Isaiah is describing the people are not doing. They don't lay hold of God. They don't fear God. Then the prophet finishes in the end of verse 7, the reality of judgment. It reads like this. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. As we have seen in the past, this is another example of abandonment judgment, perhaps one of the worst judgments that God ever imposes. It's where He leaves us to our own wickedness, where He leaves us to our own devices. God allows us to continue in our own sin unabated. He doesn't restrain us. He lets our sinful behavior continue and continue and then our sin distances us from God and so God distances Himself from us because we refuse to confess and refuse to, com- to repent. In other words, we have no fellowship with God. God warned the Israelites about this. He warned them early, early, early in the history of Israel. He warned them in the law back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, we read this. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. A nice way of saying you're about to pass away. And this people will rise up and play the whore with the strange gods of the land and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Just stop there for a second. The Scripture often describes idolatry as spiritual whoredom, a spiritual harlotry, because with Israel, she was and is God's chosen people. And so when she would worship the gods of the pagans, the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Canaanites, God would, dis- would send one of his prophets, and one of his prophets would say, thus says the Lord, you're engaging in spiritual harlotry, like a prostitute. This is how intimate the relationship between God and Israel was to be. In other words, when she would worship another God, she was described as being in this harlotry. As, as an aside, sexual immorality, I'm now outside the realm of the relationship between Israel and God, sexual immorality is always a product of godlessness. 
You see that in Romans 1 in very, very graphic detail. Sexual immorality is always a product of rejection of God. But what we see here in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, is God warning the people. Deuteronomy 31, 16, here in the middle of the, of the verse, he says, And this people will rise up and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, of the Philistines, of the, of the Canaanites, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. Same language. Same language that Isaiah is using in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is, not, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all of the evil which they will do. You see, God distances Himself up from us because of our sin. He's always waiting. He's always waiting for us to come to Him. By the way, when He takes out the belt and He whips us, that's an act of grace. That's an act of mercy. That's not abandonment judgment. Abandonment judgment is Him not taking out the belt and not disciplining us. Abandonment judgment is Him saying, it's all yours. But Him disciplining us is an act of mercy. But when we reject His mercy and reject His mercy and reject His mercy then he uses a different sort of judgment, abandonment judgment, and he hides himself from us because of our sin. It's a terrible spot to find yourself in. And so we must repent. We must confess our sins and repent. Isaiah will continue this prayer next time that we're together. Let's close and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. Help us approach you in wonder and awe. Help us not get so interested in the things of the world that we forget you. Help us not approach you casually. Instill in our minds fear of you, respect of you, reverential awe, so that we may obey you, so that we may wait on you, so that we may trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.